Hey, it's me, Maurice. Before we get into this week's show, I just want to let you know that we're coming up on Revision Path's ninth anniversary. And to help celebrate that, we're going to do a mailbag episode for our January 31st show. So we'd love to hear from you. So send me your questions to mail at revisionpath.com, and I'll try to answer as many of them as I can. I'll also put a link in the show notes to the contact page on our website, too, just in case you want to send your questions that way. Or you could even send us your question on Twitter or Instagram. Can't wait to hear from you. Now on with the show. Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but can't find diverse, talented candidates? Then we have something that can help, our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, Minnesota State University Mankato is looking for an assistant professor in graphic design in Mankato, Minnesota. Pollen Midwest is looking for an art director. Pollen is based in Minneapolis, but this is a remote position. And Work & Co. is looking for a senior QA analyst in Brooklyn, New York. For just $99, we will feature your listing on our job board for 30 days and help spread the word about it to our audience of listeners. We also offer an annual job board subscription for companies and organizations. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more information on these listings and others. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. And before we get into this week's interview, let's take some time out and thank our accessibility sponsor for this episode, Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit, creative excellence without the grind. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with Emmanuel Nwogbo, a Nigerian-born visual artist located in Montreal, Quebec. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Emmanuel Nwogbo. I am from Nigeria. I am a graphic designer, so I work full-time as a graphic designer. I also do freelance graphic design, and I also do uh, some uh, visual arts. Uh, at the moment, I do the visual arts on the side. Okay. So um, how uh, has 2021 been for you? Like, did you sort of learn anything new about yourself? Like, how has the year been? Honestly, it's uh, probably one of my best years so far. So I moved to Montreal in at the end of 2019, and then 2020 happened. So 2020 was a very kind of a strange year. So 2021 was like my first, like, full year in Montreal. And uh, honestly, it's, it's, it went really, it went really well. I pretty much hit all my goals. So that was uh, very exciting. 
It was also my first summer in Montreal, which everyone was, uh, people really hype up the summers here. And I, I can see why. So this was my first real experience of the summer in Montreal. It was a little restricted still because of the COVID, but honestly, I, I think I had a pretty good year. What makes the summer so nice in Montreal? The, there's so much to do. Like, there's so much going on here, like events-wise. Uh, there's always something happening. Like, you never run out of stuff to do. Typically, without uh, any, like, uh, COVID or anything like that, there's a ton of festivals that come in town and all that. It wasn't as much as it typically would be, but there was still a lot of uh, things to do here. It's a lot of sports, a lot of physical activity, uh, parties. Like, it, it, there's a lot of... There's, Honestly, I was a little bit overwhelmed at some point. It, mm. it was a lot of things happening. Yeah. That sounds like Atlanta in the summertime. Or really like oh, in yeah. the in the like late spring going into summer, because that's sort of our festival season, where mm -hmm. there's usually like a festival, a neighborhood festival or something every weekend or something. But like I say that's usually the best time to come because it's it's not too hot. The pollen is usually not too bad around that time. It's like maybe a yeah a two or three week period where it's like, Oh, this is perfect. Like we have that in the spring going into the summer and we have it in like the early fall because it never really gets super cold here. So like that early fall, like, I don't know, like back to school, September, October is usually like a really nice time. So no, that's, that's good to know about, about Montreal though. Maybe when the, the world starts to open back up, People can experience you, you only, uh, you some of those summers, come, but you only want to come here in the uh, in the summer, honestly, because the winter <laughs> is uh, just miserable. Oh man, <laughs> there's there's no fall. It's just all of it's summer, and all of a sudden it's just winter. Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> so for 2022, do you have any like goals or resolutions that you want to share? So usually, I try to like set uh, goals and plans. The only thing on my list for next year right now is uh, get my citizenship, becoming oh, a nice. citizen. That's the only thing on my list right now. I started the process uh, this year, submitted an application, so now I'm just playing the waiting game, but that's like the number one thing on my list. Second, I would say it's kind of a second thing on the list, but I'm not really sure how it's going to go. I decided I was going to you know, try to do some exhibitions in Montreal because I haven't done any since I moved here. So try to like break into the art scene a little bit. Honestly, I'm a little bit uh, overwhelmed by it because it's like a big city. Uh, there's a lot of art here. There's a lot of competition. So there's that little fear there. So I am going to attempt to see uh, to see if I can you know do some uh, exhibitions next year. If not next year, then maybe 2023. It's a little difficult given that I have a full time job and I have like uh, my own like personal practice. You know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but those are the, I would say, the two main things uh, that I have planned for next year. Speaking of the the full-time job, you work for MTL Development. You work there as a as a graphic designer. Tell me about, like, what that entails. Like, what's a, a regular day look like for you? So the, the company is a real estate uh, development company. So they, uh, they build condos, they sell condos. Uh, so essentially, my job there is to uh, make promotional materials for the marketing department essentially uh, materials that help sell these uh, condos. And so for each condo project, we have, we create like an entire brand around that project. And then we then try to create ads and uh, designs based on that brand that we've created. So the company itself has its own brand and then each of the projects has a brand that comes with it. So my job essentially is to create those brands and to uh, 
design for those brands and to make sure that everyone that is doing anything for the brands is adhering to the brand identity. Okay. So like you're doing this for like, let's say, like condominium complexes or subdivisions? Like So it's called condominiums. So it's mostly condominiums. Okay. All right. Yeah. I got you. Sounds like uh, Montreal is probably a pretty booming real estate market then. Yeah, it's it's pretty booming, even despite the fact that there was a pandemic. It's uh, it's pretty still booming. How has it been working during the pandemic? I wasn't really affected too much. I think there was maybe like a one or two month period where my hours were reduced, so we had to go on this like uh, program that the government would like. You would uh, with the government. I think uh, your your worker would pay you say about maybe 20% and the government would pay like the rest. So I had to like cut down to like 20 hours for about a month or two. But I pretty much worked all through the pandemic. So I worked from home, worked in the office, worked from home again. And then now we are we're back in the office since the beginning of the year. So the job was pretty much unaffected. But obviously there was a very, uh, there was a reduced, the real estate market was a little bit, uh, suffered a little bit. So there was a reduced sales. So uh, the marketing was it totally, it was, was a little bit different than what it is right now. Also, with the work that you are doing as a designer, you work with another design agency called Queer IT. Is that right? Yes. Tell me about that. So that job, that's actually the first job that I got in Montreal. So I came in uh, October and then I got that job in November of 2019. And essentially... I saw this ad where they were hiring, like looking for a graphic designer because I was just applying for every graphic design job I could see. Mm-hmm. So I saw the ad and I had an interview with the person that runs the place and then they just hired me. But essentially what the job is, is uh, you give them your hours and then they send, they send proposals to you based on your hours. Or sometimes they just reach out to you and ask you to send a quote for a certain job. And then if the client accepts your quote, then... And then you, they give you the job, or sometimes they just tell you, "Well, this client wants to wants to uh, rebrand. The their budget is two thousand dollars. Can you work with that? You know that kind of thing." Mm-hmm. That's basically how the the system works. But essentially, it's basically still like every other graphic design job, except that it's uh, I would say the company is maybe targeted more towards uh, queer people. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing that I was a little confused about when I got hired or when I applied for the job. When I applied for the job, I said, "Well, I'm not. I don't. I'm not queer. So, are you only hiring queer people?" And they said, "Oh no, you can apply." So, yeah, I applied and I got the job. Okay, it sounds kind of like a like a collective sort of model where you're not necessarily working full time, but like as work comes in, if you have the time to work on it, they sort of pull you into the project. They include you on the proposal. Like you're sort of part of the the working team for whatever that project might be, if they happen to land it. Exactly. That's how it goes. And then uh, there are some projects that I did with them where the client was doing like a full like business plan. So I had to like, there was like a strategist there, there was a copywriter and we like work as a team to like uh, deliver the project. Okay. I want to kind of, you know, switch gears here a little bit as you've been talking about your work, because I'm curious to know more about you growing up because you're really a prolific artist. And I think that's something that I really want to explore more. As we go on oh, the interview. That's a big, that's a big one. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about where you grew up. So I grew up in uh, Lagos, Nigeria. So Nigeria is the most populous black nation in the world. Over 200 million people. 
And Lagos probably has at least 30 million people. Like nobody knows the real, the real number because the census is very uh, funny, very corrupt. <laughs> well, Lagos is like huge. I grew up in Lagos. Uh, Lagos, I would say it's pretty much, it's a crazy city. Like there's so much going on there. There's so much crime, so much corruption. But the game, but even besides all that stuff, there's a lot of like art, there's a lot of, I would say like um, heritage that comes with it. Like Lagos is an old city. It's probably mm-hmm. one of the uh, oldest modern cities in Nigeria. So like there's always something going on. So growing up, I wasn't exposed to too much art in a sense, but I've always known how, I've always like had the talent to draw. I always knew how to draw. So I was always, th- I always, I was always in the final class and even when I went to uh, high school, which is secondary school in Nigeria, you had to pick uh, certain subjects. A lot of people were not doing fine arts. Like we were very few doing fine arts, maybe 20 in the class. Mm. When I say 20, like, and this school was a big, I went to a public secondary school. So it was a government public secondary school. It was huge. My graduating class had 506 people in it. Wow. Yeah, so it was a big school, and out of that 506, like, it was probably maybe like 15 or 20 people that were doing fine arts. So that was my main exposure to arts, and honestly, the arts are not really, is not really supported in Nigeria. Like, it's, I think it's a miracle that even my parents allowed me to go uh, do arts at university. A lot of people were not happy about that, because the general belief is that uh, if you're not a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer, like, you're not making money. Mm-hmm. So... This, there was always that to like uh, battle with, but uh, I would say that uh, honestly, the truth is, a lot of artists are not making money in Nigeria. I also think it's the it's the way they present themselves. Art is not really respected, but then there's also people making a lot of money from it too. So I think it's all about positioning and how you market yourself. Mm. That's so interesting because I was going to ask about whether or not your parents kind of like supported you in this, but it sounds like you really got that encouragement from school to kind of focus on arts and everything. When you decided that you wanted to go to college for the arts and for design, like were your parents okay with that? So they were totally okay with it. Like I didn't know anything about design Mm -hmm. growing up. I was, I was an artist, a traditional media. So drawing, painting. So when I wanted to go to school, I wanted to do fine arts. And then I got the admission and then I got to the school and then I did one year in fine arts. And then I had this friend that was doing a uh, graphic design and he would just like make cool stuff on Photoshop. Mm-hmm. So I decided, you know what? I want to make cool stuff. So I just switched. That's how I ended up in uh, graphic design. But the program that I did was a uh, kind of a uh, interdisciplinary program in the sense that there was no real focus. We did a lot of things like art history, um, all covered all the art movements. Uh, we also did like 3D. I did a full year in uh, of 3D game design. Hmm. Uh, uh, I also did um, uh, web design. I did like regular graphic design, logos, branding. You know, like we did everything, but there was no real focus. So even when I came out of college, I didn't exactly know what I was because then it's like you know how to do like a little bit of everything, but you're not really like good at wanting. You know. Yeah, But the one thing that lacked in that whole school was research because there was more focus on the finished product. But then as I've come to learn, a lot of design is relies heavily on the actual process, not as much as the finished product. 
So when I came to Canada for, uh, to NASCAR to do the masters, it was a totally different experience because then at NASCAR they were focused on research. Okay. So that's when I that's when I learned how to do research, and so they wanted me to do uh, something. Um, because the master's program has a thesis and like a uh, a final project. So they wanted me to do this, uh, do something Nigerian-based. So I ended up doing um, this. I decided to tackle a social problem. So I decided to focus on the oil industry in Nigeria. So oil was discovered in Nigeria in 1956. And Nigeria is divided into four parts. There's the north, which is pretty much like half of the country. And then there's the south-south, southeast, and then the southwest. I'm from the southeast. So Nigeria has three tribes, Igbo, Yoruba, Hausa. So the Hausas are predominantly in the north. The Yorubas are predominantly in the southwest. The Igbos are predominantly in the southeast. And then the south-south covers a lot of minorities. But at the time that oil was discovered, oil was only discovered in the south-south. So what that meant was that oil exploration, all the illegal practices that companies like Shell and all these other big oil companies, all their illegal practices and everything, all the nonsense that comes with oil exploration only happened in the South-South. But the Nigerian economy is pretty much only reliant on oil. So what that means is that that part of the country produces pretty much most of Nigeria's like revenue and sustains Nigeria's economy. Mm-hmm. But then the people are suffering because the the shell has so much influence in in the Nigerian uh, government and so what that means is that they are they are pretty much allowed to get away with whatever they want so the oil industry is regulated but it's regulated to a point so like like I remember when I was doing the project as around 2015 as then there was average of 1000 oil spills in Nigeria every year and that's the reported ones but in Europe they only had like seven in like the last 10 years so that's how much oil spillage happened in Nigeria. And that's because of the illegal practices of like mostly Shell. Mm. So my whole project was focused around uh, how can we create awareness? Because usually the only time you can get a Nigerian government to do something about it is when there's like pressure from like international, like the international community. But the Nigerian government like does like a really good job at like hiding this whole problem. There's a good 30 million people in this part of Nigeria, in this southern region of Nigeria. But even when I was growing up in Lagos, you only heard about this problem when the people in the area like got upset and then they created like rebel gangs and then they started kidnapping white oil workers, asking for ransom. That's when you started hearing about it. But on a regular basis, you wouldn't like people would die all the time there. There was huge problem with like res- there was huge respiratory problems. There was huge pollution issues. Nothing like nothing was ever covered in the news. Or if it was covered, it would like not it wouldn't it wouldn't be highlighted upon. So the whole focus was how can I create awareness to this problem, and then that awareness would force the Nigerian government to treat the people of that region well. And uh, one major issue that Nigeria has, and even till now, is that even though Nigeria is a, runs a federal government, the government is more unitary. Because I know, like for example, in the U.S. and even in Canada here. Each province or state like has control of its resources and everything. Yeah, but in Nigeria, much. yeah, in Nigeria it's the opposite. Even though we also have a federal government or a federal system of government, all the states we have thirty six states, and each state, everything each state generates or makes goes to the center, and then it gets divided at the center to all thirty six states based on some metric they come up with. 
So what that means is that so the, the region of the country that was responsible for seeing 90 percent of the economy, by the time everything gets split based on population and other metrics they have, they get 15 percent back. But they are the ones taking all the damage. And so their whole protest has always been we want 100 percent control of our resources. But I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. So initially, when the rebel started, it started up like as a small operation, and then it, it became like a big time operation. Like they were kidnapping oil workers, like they were killing government officials, and like as of 2006, like 2006 was like the peak of like the uh, of like the rebels in that area, and they were getting their money from oil bunkering, which is also contributing to the problem. Oil bunkering is when you like break like uh, a section of, of the crude oil like pipeline. And then you take crude oil from it and then go refine it and then sell it. So they were doing that and they were making money to fund their operations. But that was also contributing to the problems because then that was causing oil spills and all the same environmental damage that, that the, the region was facing. And that region is uh, is right by the Atlantic Ocean and then River Niger, which is the second largest river in Africa, also run through that region. So most people there are predominantly fishermen and the water and the ecosystem is totally messed up. I think it's going to take like 100 years of no oil exploration for the environment to return back to its natural state. That's like how bad they've wrecked it. Mm. So that's what I spent uh, almost two years doing in the Masters. And it honestly, it was a very successful project. It taught me a lot about Nigeria that I didn't even know about. And it was an interesting research in the sense that me being a Nigerian and knowing all the nonsense that goes on in Nigeria, and then me now being outside Nigeria and trying to do all this research, and then reading research papers and materials from people that have never been to Nigeria and seeing their take on Nigeria was pretty hilarious. There's some American articles that I read about the same problem in Nigeria, and there are some claims they made, and I said, oh, well, I'm like, this this doesn't happen, or this never happens. Hmm. Or like the way they try to exaggerate certain things was, uh, yeah, it was actually interesting to see that from like uh, from a different perspective. I mean, that's a lot that you just described around Nigeria and corruption in the country, and I definitely want to go back and touch on that. But I want to kind of bring it back a little bit because you kind of took us uh, all the way from from college through going to grad school and going to Canada. It sounds like, you know, back when you were, were mentioning this program that it didn't really kind of prepare you for the working world. Was that the impetus to move to Canada? Like, did you just kind of want to get out from another country? Because it sounds like you moved from Nigeria to Cyprus, which is where this university was located. And then what spurred the move, like of all places to go to Canada? What spurred the move was always, I've always wanted to come to the West. So it was either Canada or US or maybe the UK. I left school in 2014, February. That's college. And then, but I was already applying to several schools. So I got this university in Arkansas. And good thing I didn't go there because I I don't know who lives in Arkansas, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you would not have liked it. You would not have liked it. Yeah, no. <laughs> but uh, the reason I, I ended up in Nova Scotia was because I had, uh, the school has a little bit of, rep, of uh, reputation. And so I heard about the school and the founder of the school is uh, Anna Leowen. So I, I just wanted to go to school because the school was uh, had like a, a reputation in the art community. Mm-hmm. I didn't know anything about Nova Scotia. I didn't know anything about the school. I just like did some quick research. It's the smallest place I've ever lived in. I think there's like 300,000 people in Halifax. Mm-hmm. 
So that was like a complete like shocker to me. Like it was totally like different like experience. I just wanted to come to Canada, right? I wanted to come to Canada or US, but Canada just seemed to work out better. Mm-hmm. And my dad has always preferred uh, Canada because he doesn't like America because of the guns and the fact that uh, most people are just a little bit uh, crazy in America. That's fair. That's a fair assessment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but Halifax also has a pretty big black population too. We've had uh, back on the show. Oh God, this might have been a hundred or so episodes ago. We had Dwayne Jones back mm-hmm. on the show. I think that was episode two hundred three, if I recall. So it was a while, a huge, while ago. Yeah, there's a huge black population there, but you have to go look for them. <laughs> he said the same yeah. thing. He said that yeah. too. Yeah. <laughs> There are some times where I used to work at a hotel in Halifax uh, at the front desk. Uh-huh. And there, were, there are some times where, like, they would, like, uh, so maybe, like, a girl, a, a girl was in her, like, a birthday party and, like, all these black people would come. And I, I'm every time I'm always confused. I'm like, I have never seen this many black people before. Like, you actually <laughs> have to go look for them. Yeah. <laughs> you have to go to specific places to find them. <laughs> How was it adjusting to Canada? I mean, outside from, you know, the fact that, it's a totally different country and different weather and everything. How was it adjusting? It wasn't too bad because when I came, I was so busy with school that I didn't really have more time to do anything else. Uh, the weather was a huge shock to me. I think, uh, so I came in August and, you know, there was a slow transition. And then all of a sudden on January 1st, the first time I ever saw snow in my life, mm. there, was a, there was like a snowstorm just January 1st of 2015, there was, I woke up and there was like a huge snowstorm. The snow was like four feet high. So yeah, Ooh. that was an issue. <laughs> so yeah, that I had to like shovel snow. So that was like first experience with snow. Adjusting wise in terms of, so the school that, uh, the, the thing with NASCAR is there was, at the time I was there, there was about 1,000 students roughly, maybe five black people. So, oh, interesting. There was no like real because it's again it's an art school. There's not a lot of black people going to art schools, mm-hmm. so that does. But I'm always I'm used to always being the only like black person in most places that I go. You know, most classes or most things that I've done, I'm always usually the black only black person there. That was not a problem for me. That's something that I was used to. But I never really had any issues honestly because Halifax is like a very small and like very laid back like uh, city. So. And also because it's Canada too, there's not like a lot of overtly racist problems. People are very low key about their racism, you know, because you know Canada people here are supposed to be nice, so you know, they always like hide everything. <laughs> but it's so, still there, though. Oh, it's still it's hundred percent still there. Like uh, I've, I had I had like a lot of like uh, experiences when I worked at the hotel for about three years. There was a lot of like uh, incidents that I thought were pretty much very racist. Mm-hmm. But in general, there was nothing to the face. Plus, I've also noticed this. I noticed this even from working at the hotel. Because I'm a very tall black guy, a lot of people just don't mess with me. Just in general. I, people just don't mess with me, even though like, <laughs> like that's just something I noticed. So I never had any uh, issues like overtly. The first house that I stayed in, so I did, uh, I don't know if they have this in the US, but here in Canada, like, when you come to like university for the first time, they have these arrangements where you like you stay with a family. Hmm. Yeah. So they, when I first came, I was about twenty years old. I came when I came in August, and I already like arranged to stay with this family. And I only ended up staying there for three months because 
I don't think this that family has ever hosted a black person before, an African in general. So it was a very strange situation. It was two old, uh, this old woman and her husband, they were maybe in their like 60s, 70s. And it was just weird living with them. Like they just didn't know how to interact with like African. <laughs> <laughs> it was really odd. So I ended up moving out because I was just not comfortable. And so even that uh, area they lived in, they lived on Gottingen Street in Halifax, which is like a predominantly like black like neighborhood. Yeah. So typically because of the way Halifax has been, I say, constructed, that's like a hugely populated, uh, black populated area. So there's like all these cops and all this sort of stuff. But at the end of Gottingen, it turns into a super white neighborhood. So that's where I lived at that point. And so the woman, when I first moved there, she said, she said, well, you have to be very careful because you're going to be a person of interest. Oh, I still don't know what that means still today. (laughs) But I just remember her saying that to me. And I still don't know what it means. Oh, I mean, it just means like you're honestly, it's just you're a black guy in a in a white neighborhood or something like that. So if something were to go down, then yeah. <laughs> you're the first one that they're going to suspect because, you know, so where I live now in, in Atlanta is a, is a pretty black neighborhood. It's called the West end. But before that I stayed in Buckhead, which is kind of the kind of richer, whiter part of town. I stayed there for a couple of years in college. And then afterwards, and I remember like I would go to the grocery store and get groceries. And then even on the walk home, which was not that far because the grocery store was on the same street, maybe about a half a mile. I'd say like three out of four times I would make that walk. The police would just like roll up like slowly, like you hear the siren and like, what's going on? Well, we heard about some things going on in this area. I'm like, well, I'm walking with groceries. So I don't know what you think I'm doing. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, it's like you're a person of interest. They just want to, I don't know, intimidate you, I guess. But in uh, Halifax, there's something they call a DWB. It's a driving while black. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of, there's a lot lot of that everywhere. It seems like there's a lot of racial profiling, like people just, just getting stopped randomly. Right. Driving while black, walking while black, shopping while black. Unfortunately, that is all still a thing that we have to contend with even this far into the future. But I want to talk about this, uh, this project that you did in 2018. So you did this, uh, sort of like, I guess you could call it like a creative project where you designed or you, you kind of did these photo manipulations, adding yourself in with James Bond characters. You did this, uh, 365 of these. Can you tell me a little bit about that project? Yeah, so the, the project was not about me adding myself. I didn't add, I think maybe I added myself in, in two out of 365. Oh, okay. But uh, yeah, so basically what the project was, was uh, in it's the planning started in 2017. I decided I was going to do a 365 project. This is something that I've always wanted to do because every year I try to like set a goal at the beginning of the year and say, okay, this is something, this is my new year resolution and this is how I want to accomplish it. So in 2017, I started working at the hotel in 2016. And the only reason I started working at the hotel was because I needed to get my permanent residence, which is kind of, I think it's like the green card, kind of similar to the green card in the US. And so part of the requirement was I was required to work there for like a year. And they were kind of, the hotel was kind of helping with it. So I, I pretty much got stuck there. But then I, I was fresh out of school, like a year. This was a year after I got out of school. But then I'm also thinking, well, I'm going to be stuck here for like a good year, at least maybe two years. I'm not really practicing design. I need 
practice because you need to practice or if you're going to forget, you're going to forget. So I was thinking, how do I go about this? But I also have the issue where I was always working at the hotel and I had very little time. So in the summer, I did this 26-day like creative project where I did something with the alphabet every single day. I did like A, B, C, D, something based on A, something based on B, just like that. And then... I did all 26 days. I didn't miss a day. So I'm like, okay, so this is actually doable. So I decided, okay, I'm in 20, starting to 1st of January of 2018, I'm going to do a 365 project, but I had no idea what I was going to do. So I did a lot of research. I uh, came across, uh, there's this uh, lady that she said she, she didn't know how to cook. So she went and bought the recipe book and she would make something for the recipe book every single day of the year. And then people, there's this guy in New York that, he would go around New York and paint historic windows. So every day of the year, he painted one historic window. Like a lot of projects like that that I started following. So I was thinking, what am I going to do? And then I found this guy on Tumblr, when Tumblr was still a thing back then. He was doing a, a 365 project where he made one, he just remade one movie poster. And I was like, that's actually interesting. I, I would like to do something that is movie-related. And I, I'm a huge James Bond fan. So I saw this. I remember that I then I remember that I had there was this article that I saw about like top 103 James Bond villains. I'm like, okay, so if there's 103 villains, it means that there's more people. So I started looking up like uh, on the James Bond wiki, found like that there's over 500 characters. So I made a list of all the characters, you know, do some research on each one to make sure that I had there was enough content that I could use. And so I did that, took me almost three months to like compile. And then January 1st, the goal of the project was to make one poster that pays tribute to a different James Bond character every day. Mm -hmm. Just when the movie is not the books. So that was the goal of the project. And the only like objective that I had was that every day just had to look different. That was just it. And at the beginning of the project, I wasn't focused on the actual design itself. I was more focused on the main challenge for me was, because I knew I could do the design already, but can I do this for 365 days straight and not miss a single day? That was the most important thing to me. Mm -hmm. But I did also didn't want to cheat. I didn't want to like <laughs> pre-make stuff, you know? Yeah. So I had to make something every day. So that was, for me, that's the challenge that, that was going on. And you know, till today, some people don't believe that I actually made one every single day. Some people are like, ah, so did you, did you like make three in advance and just like wait and post it every day? I'm like, no. Considering how much time it took, because I, I was averaging about 3.5 hours every day by the end of the year. And some days I had four hours, some days I had one hour, some days I had three hours. But basically I had about 3.5 hours every day to, I, I knew the character already, come up with a concept and execute that concept. So that totally changed my whole design process. Because there's one problem that I had that that project fixed was the problem was when I get an idea and I think that this idea is a good idea, then you know I'm going to stick with it. Mm -hmm. It's hard for me to like leave that idea alone, but this project kind of made me unintentionally like grow out of that habit because there are some days where I'm looking at the time, I'm like, well, I've been stuck on this one idea for like three hours now. I have only two hours left. Mm -hmm. I have to do something else. So then at first I would like discard ideas, but then somebody told me, well, instead of discarding it, then you can just like have a folder where you just like put in all the stuff that you haven't used. And then in the future, you can use them again. So which is what I started doing. I would just like put the ideas there. 
But at first, the first month started off as more of like an abstract kind of deal. And then later on, I kind of like, because I was afraid of copyrights and stuff. But then when I read up on copyrights and all this sort of stuff, I was able to like move towards more like using like the photos. And honestly, when I started, I wasn't delusional thinking I was going to go all the way. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to do this and see how it goes. Yeah. And then when I actually did the first 30 days and I didn't miss a single day, I was so much confidence. So that's, so that's, that's how this project went. Now I was going to ask, like, what did you sort of learn about yourself throughout that process? I am kind of a perfectionist, but then I also learned that I have to be okay because you know, usually when you post your work online, you're usually posting what you think is the best, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, okay, this is really, really good and I'm going to post it. But I, then I realized, well, I either have to make really good stuff and post it every day or I have to be fine with posting stuff that are not very good. Yeah. <laughs> so at first, I really struggled with that because I'm like, if this is, if I have to post this, this has to be good on some level. It has to be good on some scale. And so it started off like that. But then I had like, I met a lot of people that were doing projects too. And I talked to a lot of people and a lot of people told me that you have to be fine with the days that are not good. Right. Mm. You have 365 days. So if this day is not like so great, there's another another day, you know, the next day you can knock out of the pack. And then I also figured out how to take breaks without missing a day. So some days, because I was working morning shifts or evening shifts or night shifts. So some days I would make something at nine o'clock in the morning. And the next day I make something at 8 p.m. So that's like a good, what, 30 hours of rest. Mm -hmm. So it's like I missed a day, but I didn't really miss a day. And I I made a lot of sacrifices. There were like parties or places I couldn't go to because I'm like, well, I haven't done today's work. So everything is in the back burner until I do today's work. Once I do the work and post it, the kind is like a sense of accomplishment, a sense of relief that came with that. (laughs) I mean, I have to give it to you for really finding a way to do it every day. Like I, I did a similar type of a 365 project, not a visual project. I did a podcast where I did a recorded episode every day for 365 days called the year of tea. And I like did these short, like five minute episodes, just reviewing a different tea every day. And I didn't get to it every day. There were definitely some days that I batched like about a week together, especially if I was traveling or something like that. So I have to give it to you for carving out. I mean, one carving out time to do it each day, but then the fact that you carved out, so much time like you said you were averaging around like three and a half hours a day for these designs that's a lot of time so honestly some days there's a few days where i spent like good eight hours and this i'm like well today's a saturday (sighs) i'm home sure wow i was in front of my computer for eight hours because then the days that i have so much time i feel like those days that's where i kind of i put in way too much time and i try too hard Cause I'm like, well, I have a lot of time today, so I'm just gonna like spend as much time as possible in this. Mm-hmm. But like, they, like there's a day that I only had 30 minutes, and I managed to do something also. And you told me before we had started recording that there's like hundreds of characters to choose from. Because initially, I was like, there's over 365 James Bond characters. I was thinking, oh, there's, yeah. I was like, there's James Bond. There's probably every Bond girl, every Bond villain, and I, I mean, felt like, like some it just sort of tops off right like there. One scene, you know. There was a, there was like a few people that showed up for one scene, so you have to like do something for this one person, you know. Mm-hmm. Maybe some maybe they said something funny. But so what I did was when I was setting up the list, 
I spread out the characters because there's like there a lot of characters that I wanted to get to. So I spread them out. So it was those characters that I wanted to get to that kept me going the whole time. I kind of like put them strategically. So like at the beginning of every month, I have like one major character. So like one big villain or something like that, you know, mm-hmm. day 200, I have like one big character that I have to work on. Like, yeah. I, like it was I strategically like positioned each one. So the, the way I started the project. So for in the, the old James Bond movies and even like, like the recent ones, there's this organization, organization called uh, Spectre. Mm-hmm. And so each person at that time, especially from the, the movies in the 60s, they had like a number. So there's number one, number two, number three. So I, that's how I started. And then on day seven, I did James Bond, which is 007. So that's how I kind of like yeah. started like the first few days. But like there was like little things like that. And so I unintentionally populated the James Bond like internet space. Like when you just look up random things on James Bond about James Bond, like you see my stuff popping up. So that that's something that I'm really happy about. Well, I mean, the thing with James Bond movies is that they come out like every few years or so. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of time between movies to really kind of fill that space with stuff. Cause there's not a lot of like active talk. Like, I don't even know if there's like a James Bond, like comic book or something like you would think with, all the superhero movies and stuff, you know, there's always some kind of media that fills the gap between movies. It's a television show. There's a comic book. There's something like James Bond kind of really, it feels like exists only in fiction and in movies. Like, of course it's from the books, but there's not really that other media around it to kind of fill the gap. I think I feel that a few people have, have written books that are not Ian Fleming. A few people not named Ian Fleming have written books like recently, but I think it's because that the uh, Barbara Barbara Broccoli that owns the IP and MGM they have like a really really strict hold on the IP, so it's very difficult for you to be able to like somebody somebody if like now that Amazon bought uh, MGM, so maybe Amazon might want to produce like a TV show or something. Who knows? But I t- also think it's because the the IP is so old and it's right from like the 60s so it's one of those things where there's so much content already so maybe they don't think they're going to make money who knows i don't know hmm. could be i mean there used to be a um oh god you mentioned that i feel like there was a cartoon series for james bond i don't know if you remember well i don't know if they even showed it outside of the u.s it was called james bond jr I'm showing my age by saying this, but like they, it was like in the early nineties, <laughs> they had a TV show called James Bond Jr. I think it probably only like lasted a season, but it was James Bond's nephew who was also named James Bond, which I guess kind of made sense for the show. But yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure it's on YouTube or something. I, I'll tell you, I'll tell you one, uh, one antidote about Africans in general. Mm-hmm. So if you are say, say I'm, I'm 27 right now mm-hmm. and say you're 37. All the things that you experience as a 37-year-old when you say you were like 10, I probably experienced the same thing because now, because of the internet, everything like gets everywhere quickly. Uh-huh. But as I'd say, like the late 90s, early 2000s, we were like a good like 10 years behind everything. The first computer I used was Windows 98. Okay. I also used dial-up internet. I used, uh, I had the Walkman, I had the CD player, all this stuff. VHS, all the stuff that people my age here didn't like experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Out of all of the, the characters that you did, was there a favorite one? My favorite one was uh, the, uh, what was it? Day 124, which is uh, May Day. 
Mm. So that was, Grace that was on May 1st. Yeah, Grace Jones. Yeah. yeah. So I did that on May 1st, which is May Day. So that's my absolute favorite. That's the one that I've sold the most. That's the one that people love the most. I'm going to have to check that one out. I don't know if I saw that one on your site, but I'll definitely have to, uh, it's, uh, to check that you one know out. The, you know the famous uh, We Can Do It poster mm-hmm. with a woman flexing her biceps? Yeah. Yeah, so I did uh, that's, uh, I did one with Grace Jones where the background is yellow. Oh, nice. Nice, yeah. nice. So you kind of alluded to this when you mentioned this piece, but you've you know even managed to exhibit designs from this project. You've done a number of different exhibitions with it. How have those went? They went really well. So I did, uh, at the beginning of uh, 2019, I did the exhibition in, actually in May of 2019, I did an exhibition in a small gallery called the Corridor Gallery in Halifax. It's at Visual Arts Nova Scotia. So I did, that was like the first exhibition that I've ever done. So I would consider myself a digital artist. So having to like print out my stuff, put it in a frame, hang it on a wall, totally new to me. But that was like a great experience. That's the first time that I felt like an artist. Mm. Yeah, that was amazing. And then I got to exhibit at the Halifax Public Library last year, despite the pandemic. I was there for about two months. That's like the gallery there is like a very lovely space, huge, like, and they only accept, I think, like six artists a year because each person stays for like two months. Mm-hmm. So I applied and they accepted like almost immediately. So I was beyond, I was overjoyed. So that was like, that was like the big ex- exhibition that I had done. I was very good. I made a few sales from that. But like I said, like the exhibitions, like those were the things that like made me feel like a, like a real artist, you know? Yeah, that was, so I would, I really like the exhibitions. That's why I want to do some in Montreal, like a bigger city. Because I've always considered myself like a Nigerian artist. So the James Bond thing, I got a little popular from that because the James Bond IP is like, was world renowned. Like some people have never seen a James Bond movie, but when you see James Bond, everyone pretty much has an idea what you're talking about. Yeah. So, but I kind of want to stray away from that in a sense. I want to do more African themed like exhibitions. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what I'm working on right now. I'm trying to see if I can do something uh, for next year. So what sort of prompted the move from Halifax to Montreal? Like, like I was saying earlier on, Halifax is a very small city. Honestly, I was looking at it and I, because I worked, I did that job at the hotel where I was pretty much stuck for three years. I stayed in Halifax for five years, two years in school, three years at the hotel. And I was at that hotel stuck. I couldn't leave because of the whole like immigration thing. And so I was not happy in general. And plus all the, my last year at the hotel, there was a lot of like uh, racially motivated bullshit that went on. So mm-hmm. every time that I think of Halifax, I associate it with the hotel. So in 2019, my plan was always get my permanent residence and move to some other city in Canada. That was always my plan. But I got my permanent residence in 2018, October. And then I decided, okay, you know what? In the new year, I'm moving to a new city. That was my new, that was my new resolution for 2019. I'm leaving Halifax in 2019. But the thing is, because I've, I, I made so many friends there, I knew so many people, I knew the city well, I was so comfortable. I just like kind of relaxed a little bit. So 2019 came around and I said, I applied for this artist uh, residency in Banff. Banff is in Alberta. So I applied for the artist residency. I made it to like the final three. I didn't get it. But that was my plan. I was like, okay, 
I assumed that I was getting it for sure. That was how much faith I had in this. Yeah. I'm like, okay, once I get this, I'm just going to move move to Banff. The program was a two-year program. Do it for two years and make connections and, you know, see what happens from there. So I, I didn't get the program. So I decided, okay, so that was in May of 2019. I was like, okay, what am I going to do now? I wasn't sure. So my sister had a wedding coming up in August. So I went to Nigeria for the first time in six years for the wedding. And I decided, you know what? Once I come back from this wedding, I'm moving. Yeah. But where to? I wasn't sure. So I wanted to move to Vancouver because my sister was coming to BC for mm-hmm. school. But then I started looking up Montreal because, you know, I knew somebody that lived here. I started looking up Montreal. So I went on Indeed, checked to see graphic design jobs. I was like, oh, there's a lot of graphic design jobs here. And I can learn uh, French. So I decided, you know what, I'm moving. I'm moving to Montreal. So I I decided, okay, I'm moving. So I packed my, I went to Nigeria. I came back. I gave them my two weeks notice at the hotel. And then I moved in uh, October 1st. Uh, luckily for me, I was able to get uh, an apartment right from in Halifax there. So I shipped. So I got the apartment, but I decided, you know what? But then I started getting cold feet because then I didn't have a job, you know, no real concrete plan. Mm-hmm. So to make sure that I moved, I shipped all my bags. <laughs> that's one, one bag. that's one way to make it happen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I left just one bag. So I, after I shipped my bag, like I bought my plane ticket. I was like, I have to move now. But then, then I discovered something. There's so many people that discouraged me from moving. Mm-hmm. There's a few people that were like, you know what? This is a good move. Like you're probably gonna like make like make like uh, make big advancements from moving. But there were so many people that were like projecting their fears and telling me, well, if you move down, it doesn't work out. Then what are you going to do? People saying all this stuff to me. But then, you know, I talked to my parents and they were like in support of it. And I just, I just moved. Yeah. Yeah. So I got to Montreal and I decided, well, I already did the shitty job, you know, worked at restaurants, work at hotels, you know, I think it's time for me to like get a design job now. So I decided, you know what? I'm only going to get a design job. So mm. that's uh, that's how I ended up in Montreal. Okay. So now you've been in Montreal for what a little over? You said like two years now, something yes, like that, about, pretty yes. much. Oh, two years, yes. Have you gotten a chance to kind of see what the design community has been like outside of work? Not really, because uh, last year happened, so that was kind of a write-off. And then this year has been like super busy between work, like trying to like balance both jobs and also like trying to have a resemblance of a act uh, practice outside of work. So I haven't actually had the chance, but uh, recently I've been going to like art galleries, you know, checking out a few stuff and seeing what people are up to. But uh, as for the design community here, um, the, t- the truth is in Montreal, if you don't speak French, then you're very limited in a way. Mm. even though Montreal is, is like super bilingual, like most people you meet like speak both languages. But if you speak French, it's like a new a whole new world, you know, opens up to you there. So that's what I'm trying to do by, you know, learning French. How's your French going so far? Pretty good. All of 2020, I didn't learn French, even though one of my goals was to learn French. Uh-huh. So I moved here, but then I got cold feet because then I got a job with, even without speaking French. But then... I was thinking if I try to learn French, 
what happens if I you know forget words or if what if I can't learn? What if I can't do it? Because usually I do things that I know that 100% I'm going to succeed at this. That's mm-hmm. the kind of things I like to do. So I was a little afraid, but then at the beginning of this year, I was like, you know what? This is my new year resolution. I'm 100% committed to learning French. Yeah. Despite work and everything. So then I got Duolingo and then I got a private tutor. And honestly, like I, the progress that I've made this year, it leaves me thinking, why didn't I even start last year? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I, act- I actually made good progress. Speaking is very difficult because the pronunciations. Yeah. <laughs> the Brazilians are especially difficult for me because the sounds don't sound like Igbo and the sounds don't sound like a lot of them don't sound like English either. So there are yeah. some sounds in French that I, my brain cannot just wrap around. Yeah, it's a fun challenge, so I'm not uh, complaining. I mean, I feel like the Nigerian accent is, and this is kind of this way with with some African languages, like it's very like throat based. Like yeah. the accent is very much like deep in the throat, whereas with French, everything is nasally. There's a lot of nasal stuff to it. So I know when you're when you're learning French, a good phrase when you get stuck with something that you don't know. And I don't know, your tutor probably told you this too, but like just say "comment dit-on," which is how do you say? So yeah. you'll, you can yeah. be speaking and you that, say that's, you, that's a good one. Yeah, you can some you're like eh, "comment dit-on," eh, you know, and you kind of like roll your way through it. And most people, I mean, I've not been in a lot of immersive situations. When I have been, it's mostly been like France French, not like Montreal French or Quebec French or Quebecois or whatever. Like it hasn't been that sort of regional. It's a a totally different bag. Yeah. My my teacher is from France. Okay. Duolingo, I'm also doing is France French. So that's kind of what I'm focused on. Mm. Okay. Yeah, once you really start like immersing yourself in it, and I would say now it's probably a lot easier to do, especially, you know, like you got a smartphone or stuff like that, because you can set the language to French and then you kind of learn just from picking up like context clues and stuff like that. Like you can watch movies with the subtitles and kind of get the sense of what they're saying, things like that. Like it's it's a lot easier now than it, it used to be. Like I learned French. When I learned French, I was a kid. I mean, I started in second grade and then studied it all through high school and all through college. So, like, I know enough to, like, speak it and read it. But it's a different thing to be immersed in it when, like, it's the only thing you hear. Like, like my French is very situational. Like, like if I'm in a situation where... I need to know French like it's a French restaurant. I'm like, okay, yeah. bet. I know all the things to get around. Like, where's the bathroom? I will order this. I need this. Like, I know that stuff. Mm-hmm. But then if it were something where I'm like plopped into like Paris, I'm like, oh, okay. That's like the real test is like, how do you use it from day to day? But, but you know, that's the really like amazing uh, part about living in Montreal because all the signs. Oh, okay. Everything is in French. Ah. It's, it's it's kind of a rule they have in Quebec. If you have like any sign or or anything you see outside is usually in French. That's mm. like the rule they have. So like everywhere you go, you're exposed to French. People will say bonjour to you first. And then if you speak, respond in English, then they start speaking English to you. So my favorite game to play now is whenever I go out, I bullshit my way with French until the person realizes that I don't speak very good French. I, w- I want to <laughs> see how long I can play the game. <laughs> 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 that's a good way to do it that's a good way to do it 
What are you most excited about at the moment? Honestly, I don't know. I don't think there's one thing that really, really excites me. Or you know one thing uh, that I did this year that I can't believe I did it was I learned how to ride a bike. Okay. Yeah. I never knew how to ride a bike because when I was growing up, I didn't have a bike. Yeah. And uh, So I just never learned how to ride a bike. So when I moved to Canada, I just, it's one of those things where I'm like, I don't know if this is something that I can do. So I just never did it, you know? And then, but then I tell people I can't ride a bike and people can't believe it, you know, because most people can ride a bike. Yeah. So I decided, you know what, this summer, this is what I'm doing this summer. This is my summer project. So you, did so, you, did you buy a bike? Did you use one of those like rental bikes or something like that? Uh, it, it was more like a rental one or like a friend's bike or something like that. You know, yeah. I'm going to buy a bike, but that's going to be next summer. Because you can't bike here in the winter. There's yeah. people doing it, uh, but those people, are, I think they have other issues. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, so that was the one thing that I did this year. It seems very small, but it's, it's one thing that just gives me great joy. Because I did like a 30-minute lesson, and then I did a 30-minute lesson. I could balance myself already by the end of the 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. And then I did another 30-minute lesson. And the next time after that, I, I was able to do eight kilometers. And then I was able to do 16, 20. And at the end of the summer, I did like 35 kilometers. So that was pretty amazing for me. Yeah. yeah. All the while, I never fell. Until the last time I biked this summer before it became cold. I was coming down on the bridge. One of these uh, bridges in, in Montreal here, uh, Jacques Bridge. I was coming down really fast. And they have these barricades that you have to kind of wiggle yourself around. For some reason, I got carried away. Next thing I know, I saw myself flying out over one of these barricades. Oh. Yeah, that's the first time that I've fallen in a really long time. Yeah, it was bad. What do you think you would have went to if you didn't become like a, an artist and a designer? Probably an engineer. Because my, my dad is an engineer. So, mm-hmm. he, well, so even though he was very supportive, even my mom was very supportive too, I feel like they kind of, uh, if I didn't go into design, they probably would have stabbed me in the direction of uh, doing engineering. Did you have like an interest in it or do you think they would have just pushed you towards that because of like societal expectations? I never had an interest in it. Honestly, I've never had interest in the science, in science in general. I don't think there's any, I can't think of one profession in science that I have any interest in, honestly. I've never had the interest. I've always, I think I've always been an artist at heart. Mm-hmm. And uh, so even I'm, uh, my uncles, we are really against this. Like, how can you make money from the art, you know? And I was never really worried about money because I always tell people, it doesn't matter what you read in university. There's people on YouTube now making funny faces and making millions. Yeah. I'm like, they didn't go to school for that. So I honestly think that uh, what you go to study in university is not very, is not relevant to how much money you would make or how successful you're going to be, you know? Yeah. I mean, now the whole thing that I see with some artists is that are making money, they're making it off of NFTs. I was reading this kind of some article I read maybe a couple of weeks ago about this artist. She's a Canadian artist. I forget mm-hmm. where, but she just started learning about NFTs in about a month or so. And then using that, she made, I think, like 50 something NFTs and has made like $300,000 or something like that. Like, if you're able to get that much just off of a month's worth of learning, like, you can kind of do anything. Honestly, I've, I've looked into NFTs a little bit, but 
I haven't. My plan now is I have like a, a like a two week vacation at the end of the year, mm-hmm. so I'm gonna use those like the two weeks to like really educate myself and see what I can do because so many people have been telling me you have to look into NFTs. So I'm like, okay, maybe this is something I'm gonna look into. Who knows? Uh, when, maybe that's where I'm gonna you know make it big because my goal in in art is to make that one piece of art that's gonna pay me for the rest of my life. That's my goal. Hey, you know, if you find a way to make it happen, let yeah. us know. Share the share the knowledge <laughs> so we can get in on it. <laughs> I want to be that guy that that like sticks a banner on the wall and people just pay two hundred thousand dollars for it, right? <laughs> and then everyone can cry about it online. <laughs> <laughs> if there's somebody that's out here that's you know kind of listening to your story and they want to follow, kind of in your footsteps, what advice would you give them? I would say, honestly speaking. I'm probably one of the most fortunate persons that I know because I would say that because pretty much most things that I do, I succeed. I don't know if there's something special that I'm really doing that is leading me to succeed in most things that I do, but I don't know. Somehow I usually just like pull it off, but I'm also someone that if I decide I'm doing something, I'm going all in. And if I start something and I know if I realize that, you know, maybe this is not going to work out, I usually back out early. Once I get deep into it, then, you know, I'm seeing it all the way. Like the, for example, like the 365 project. Mm-hmm. As by July, I was getting really, really tired, like exhausted, like coming up with a new idea every day is not easy. Right. Like, you know, plus I had to make this all through artist blocks, like creative block, all this. I had to find a way to make stuff, you know. But I was also thinking, I'm like, if I've made it this far, there's no way I'm stopping now. Because then if I stop, I'm going to regret this for a long time. So that's usually how I approach most things. Like once I start, I'm going all the way. I've learned like there's a, there's a problem that most like I, I realized that a lot of Nigerians have. And I used to have these problems. People are afraid to fail. Nigerians are afraid to fail in general because the culture does not really encourage failure in a way where I feel like sometimes failure is very important for you to get to the next level. Mm-hmm. Like you, you hear about like these scientists where it's, oh, this inventor like made this for like 800, he made like 800 different versions before the final one worked. Like, you know, that's not encouraging Nigerian culture. Like if you do something, you have to succeed at it. Like this idea that, you know, uh, nine out of 10 new businesses fail. Like if you start a business in Nigeria and you fail, like people, a lot of people are not going to like make fun of you, you know, even though, <laughs> even though it's perfectly normal for businesses to like start and fail. So it took me a while to get comfortable with the fact that not everything I do is going to like go the way I want it. Mm-hmm. And so since I have learned to accept that fact, I think my life has gotten like a lot better. Mm. Yeah. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? What kind of work do you want to be doing? Honestly, I'm not really a five-year planning kind of person. I fly, I like to take things as they come. So I'm like, okay, I plan for the next year. I'm going to like, at the end of the year, I'm going to sit down and think and, sit and and like write down my goals and see if I have other things that I want to accomplish next year. But usually I take it year by year. So every year I have like a big New Year resolution that I want to hit. And I have like very little ones that I, because I like checklists. So I like to like check, check, check. So I have very little things that I want to do. And I have like a big one that I want to do for the year. And so I don't really have like five-year plans. Ideally, I want to... At the end of the day, I want to own my own design agency. I think even before that, I want to become full-time freelance, but I still need to gain the confidence, you know, because right now it's really nice eh, when you have, when you expect uh, two paychecks every month. 
But then when you become full-time freelance, then you know that you have to do as much work as possible, maybe at the beginning to get money. Because I was looking into Upwork and I realized that a lot of people in Upwork, they're like very, very talented and they're probably very experienced. But if you're starting on Upwork, you have to start like you're starting all over because you have to build up your reputation and your cred for you to be able to make money from it. So I still need to gain a little bit of confidence, but eventually I think that's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to like go full-time freelance because I think that like my dad always uh, says to me, you can't get rich from counting other people's money. (laughs) 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 Well, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more information about you and about your work online? You talk about a website. I have to update the website because that website, I made that website as a portfolio website when I was looking for a job. Uh-huh. Uh, so I never, I never like really went back to go update it, but I think I'm going to go update it. Uh, so, but my website is uh, mr365.ca. So Mr. M-I-S-T-E-R, 365.ca. I'm very active on Instagram. My Instagram is Nigerian Expert, E-X-P-E-R-T. Uh, you can find me on Instagram. That's usually the best place to reach me. Or Facebook uh, by my name, Emmanuel Wobo, N-W-O-G-B-O. I'm very active online, so yeah. All right. Sounds good. Well, Emmanuel Nwogbo, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I think from hearing you tell your story and even you talking about moving here from Nigeria, and I get this sense that you have this very quiet maybe not so quiet confidence about you. I mean, I feel like you're kind of downplaying it maybe a little bit, but I definitely get this quiet confidence from you when it comes to pursuing the work that you want to do. Because, I mean, it takes a lot of guts to move, I mean, from Nigeria to Cyprus to Nova Scotia, now to Canada, you're still in your 20s, you're still kind of trying to figure it out, you're taking on these creative projects, like, that takes a lot of confidence to be able to do all of that and still push forward and succeed. So I'm going to be excited to see what else you accomplish kind of moving forward with your entire creative career, you know, so thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you very much for having me. I I had a uh, good time talking to you. Big thanks to Emmanuel Nwogbo, and of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Emmanuel and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. And of course, thanks to our wonderful sponsor, Brevity & Wit. Brevity & Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit. Creative excellence without the grind. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. So what did you think of the interview? Better yet, what do you think about the podcast overall? We'd love to hear from you, so please don't be a stranger. Hit us up on Twitter or on Instagram. Just search for Revision Path, all one word. Or you can leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or Spotify. 
Let everyone you know know about the show because it really helps us grow and reach more people all around the world. As always, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.